This is the Do Better Podcast with Dr. Megan Miller and Joe Smith, launching you into the future of behavior analysis. Welcome to the Do Better Podcast. In today's episode, we are discussing hot topics around social media and discourse with Ryan O'Donnell. Well, this is Megan. And this is Joe. This is where we blast off to the frontal frontier in search of improving ourselves in the field of behavior analysis. Thank you for spending time with us. Now let us begin. Today's episode is a bit different because we have a few questions that Joe will be asking us. And for the sake of time, Ryan, myself, and Joe will each take a few minutes to answer each question. So take it away, Joe. All right. So we are discussing social media. And my first question for both of you is how does the BACB ethical code interact with social media? Let's go off with Megan. Okay. So uh, we didn't really like set the tone here for our listeners, but we literally only have like an hour to record this. And you all know that I can talk a lot. So <laughs> I'm setting a timer for myself for each of these to try to stay around five minutes for my response, because I could talk about each of them for a long time. So I'm starting a timer. Okay. So the, for me, the BAC, the ethical code and social media, broadly speaking, there's very little in the code that explicitly discusses social media. I actually published a paper with a few colleagues on this about five years ago where we discussed this and how little guidance the current ethics code provides around social media. The obvious sections would be 2.06E, which is maintaining confidentiality of both supervisees and clients. I think sometimes people miss the supervisees part. Um, and then 8.0, which is public statements. And the key part in there, it talks about focusing on professional practice. And I think there's a lot of room for interpretation around the professional practice component and how that interacts with social media. For example, is a private Facebook group part of your personal or professional life? And uh, for me, the main piece that jumps out with that is that there seems to be quite a bit of confusion around the sharing of opinions. So behavior analysts in general don't agree on quite a bit. So things like RFT versus VB, uh, ACT and whether or not that falls under our scope, PFA versus traditional FA, et cetera. And if anyone was sharing differing opinions on these at like a conference or potentially even in a presentation, or if they were talking about other aspects of our field, even critical ones that identify potential harm that could be caused within uh, intervention and treatment delivery, it's highly unlikely anyone would say it was an ethical violation if you were having like face-to-face -face interactions with people. People are entitled to their opinions and perspectives and there's nothing clearly in the code that would indicate otherwise. 
because we practice a science and science is progressive, one would hope that we would be accepting of philosophical doubt, questioning, reflection on criticisms, and even creating our own criticisms of the work that we're doing. For me, social media provides a unique opportunity to interact with people outside of the field who may have different perspectives on our practice, insisting that we all fall in line with one particular opinion or perspective and that anything else is an ethical violation runs quite a few risks that could uh, also potentially violate the code in more places. I could probably spend hours talking about that. So instead, I'm just going to summarize it as um, if we're so stuck inside our own worldview and behavior analytic bubble, we lose even more sight and become even more separated from the priorities and goals of the people we are supposed to be serving. And Shane Spiker talks about this quite a bit. Ryan, I think you've even had a few events with him where you all have talked about this, um, but basically people need to distinguish between true ethical violations and just not liking things. There seems to be a lot of just not liking things that comes up on social media, but people get real fired up about it. So that's how I would uh, answer that question. And I answered in faster than five minutes. Yay. <laughs> Two minutes to spare. Ryan, do you want to go next? Yeah. So how does the BACB ethical code interact with social media? Um, I'm peeking over here because I've got notes and other things kind of thrown up. So, um, Man, there's a few things here. So first of all, this is always an interesting one because like you said, um, the code doesn't really dive into it much. I would argue that it's uh, extremely elementary and how they even uh, integrate it in. And our field just doesn't understand what social media largely actually does and how it connects people and how it works. Um, but it's it's kind of like a question for um, that, that I think many people, including our board and others, should be hopefully discussing behind the scenes and figuring out how to handle right now. Um, if anyone's coming to this for like guidance in any sort of way, the ABA ethics hotline, I get a lot of requests for ethical stuff. So I just want to point people like the ethics hotline is where you go for those sort of things as a preface. Um, like you mentioned, there's specific mentions on it in maintaining confidentiality. You cover that super well. There's like 8.04a, which is the media presentations and media-based services. Um, and then there's, I think the big one that really applies to some of the things that you were mentioning is 8.0, just the public statements. Everything has to do with public statements because they define public statements as including social media. And legally, when you look at social media, what you're doing is you're licensing your uh, content to the platform to be able to, for them to distribute. And it is considered um, from a legal framework, like public, um, a public uh, location, right? Like that's public information again, regardless if it's a private group, public group, like those sort of distinctions. When you put things out there, they're considered public. Um, and so it seems like for me that the, the, the big issue that's going on in the field right now is when public statements are made that aren't in the line of thinking, whether like it's the, the various camps that you mentioned, right? PFA, FA, RFT, VV, et cetera. Um, or it's maybe like a different philosophical position, which I don't think a lot of us uh, like digging down into like I do, but sometimes people make arguments that are more mechanistic, more contextualistic. And if you're on one side or the other and you're looking at an opponent's um, or someone that's arguing from the other perspective, you might look at those as like disagreeing because of your philosophical differences there. And what's going on here is that we don't have clear guidance on what to do in those situations um, when those public statements are made. So it's 
It's like the conditions have been created, I think, through social media to not only amplify voices and like democratize, uh, like being able to put your voice out there, which is amazing, but it's also provided a way to amplify disagreements. Um, and sometimes those are things that are philosophical in nature. We might ever, not ever uh, agree or disagree upon, um, sorry, we might not ever agree upon ever, um, which is like one type of conversation and potential solution is like training people how to identify those sort of things and have those conversations. The other ones might be uh, legit discussions in which people are from the same philosophical camps, but interpreting data in different ways. So it might be like, how do we interpret data? That might include certain skills, lack thereof, um, different things that we could potentially do to try to solve those. And then, um, so you have philosophical, the interpretation, the data. And then this one's kind of like uh, really similar to that second one, which is, I think a lot of them are rooted in, do we have, are we sure, to what extent can we, be sure that the the statements being made are validated like like how valid are these like are these actual um data that we can infer from so when people share an opinion or a perspective on something or however they want to frame it sometimes those things are met with you can't con uh contradict or uh you don't understand my experience etc and th and that i think is at the if that makes sense like kind of the core root of a particular type of issue that's going on right now, which is how do we validate perspectives, opinions through our scientific process when it's occurring on a social media platform that's not designed to incentivize that whatsoever. Um, and then all three of those can be mixed together as well. So for me, it's just, it's kind of a mess. I don't know how we're going to practically get through this without some really serious conversations. And this needs to happen probably at, at the level of, um, the board of directors of the ACB, APBA, ABI, like you, you need like a lot of people to come together, I think, to solve these sort of issues. Um, if, and, and it's just gonna keep, uh, it's just gonna keep occurring, I think until then, sadly. Um, so the practical things that we can do right now, I think uh, for anybody is reaching out to ethics hotlines, having discussions like this. Um, and then I think the main point there is uh, to tie all this back into something that's like a solid statement on how the ethical code interacts because of public statements being defined include social media. If you're engaging on social media as a behavior analyst, it seems to me that you then have to be constantly reminding yourself and, and following these ethical guidelines and everything that you do. Um, as long as a behavior analytic service or product is tied to it. Um, if it's your own opinion, your own things that you're doing, um, and there's no behavior analytic service or product tied to it, it seems like that's the way out in which you are safe to express whatever it is that you want to do. So I'll end there. So uh, it's my turn. So for five minutes, and it's really interesting to uh, listen to Megan and Ryan talk about this just because you guys have such a an amazing platform and presence online. Um, and we do suffer the do better movement online as well. But like for me, after looking over the BACB ethical code, like it's very broad to me as well. And it doesn't specifically state like where um, 
what we can do uh, without any issue, like any issues. Um, I know obviously you're not going to talk about clients on it. Obviously you're not going to be talking about um, different procedures as far as, oh, with this client, this is the, this is what he's doing. This is a procedure you should use. Uh, of course, that's not what you should be using social media for. Um, I think it gets, what it gets in a tricky, uh, tricky is like, what can we use social media for? How can we, you know, have disagreements, but um, how can we collaborate with others? Um, there's not any information in the ethics code that I can see that really states like, you know, what's ethical and what's not ethical when it comes to that. Um, so, but I, I love both of your points on, you know, where we stand as, um, as a, as an organization and where we need to go. So with that being said, I'm going to let's, I'm going to end there because you guys explained that so well. And I want to make sure that we have enough time for um, all the other discussion that we want to uh, go forth on. So let's go ahead to the next question. What, how do we define research? I'll let it up to you guys, Megan or Ryan. How do you define research? You want to go first, Megan? Mine will be quick, I promise. <laughs> it's fine. Um, I got to get my timer up again. Okay. So for this one, um, I was just looking at some of the, the discussions I've seen recently around this topic. And there seems to be at least one camp, if you will, that wants research to be the end-all be-all. And of course, as behavior analysts, we seek data to support the decisions we're making and to demonstrate functional control. The statement though, that the research is the research and the facts are the facts seem to miss a lot of nuance that exists around research. And there's a few questions that came to mind for me and I'm sure I'll have more after we talk, but one is, at what point does research equal facts? Does one study with three children where very few details are presented equal facts? As a science, shouldn't we constantly be engaging in philosophical doubt and analysis and trying to improve upon our understanding of a phenomenon? To me, that would mean research is an attempt to engage in a controlled understanding of variables and events. We may need to be a bit more stringent about how we move from research to facts. And then the bigger questions that come up for me, especially in the last few months, if the research is more colonial in nature and weird, white, European, industrialized, rich, and democratic, and doesn't work with the participants being served or the, the populations being served, try to tell us that what we are studying is not actually of interest to them, is not in line with their values, and could potentially be harmful to them, is this the kind of research we want to be conducting? Is it enough to simply say, well, we followed our, all of our requirements for conducting a research, so we win. Um, more recent, I, this came up for me when I was in grad school at Ohio State and we were looking at some of the research being done with um, race and serving the schools. And now uh, it's come even more like to understand with the work from like Dr. Malika Pritchett and Dr. Shala Alai. Um, they give us a lot of things to really think about in terms of what we're doing in our, how our research is conducted, 
how we make use of those research findings and how we structure our interventions and similarity to those research findings. A couple of points from presentations they've done recently that really hit home for me. Dr. Alai presented at FAVA in 2020 and she talked about how learning results in transformations. And I think if we're, if we're too, if we're leaning too heavily on just saying, well, there's research that says blah, 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 uh, that could limit our learning and the transformations that could occur. Um, she also mentioned that to be responsive means we don't have a priority answers or goals and that this is a really difficult thing for behavior analysts to wrap their heads around because we're used to like going in and just having all the answers and the solutions to things. She made a few recommendations. She said uh, we need to engage, which means respond with heart, learn about your own cultural experiences, learn about others' cultural experiences, and build cultural courage. We need to understand our privilege, which is um, really important when talking about research. I think I could talk about that for hours. A lot of us don't necessarily recognize the privilege that we bring to different situations and how that could affect the research we're conducting. We need to be humble, which is something I think we talk about quite a bit as behavior analysts, we tend not to be. Um, we need to nurture, and this can be done by expanding our stimulus classes by learning about social justices and injustices, expanding our response classes by being values-based, creating safe and non-coercive learning environments, maintaining clear assent, consent, and voluntariness, and learning to dialogue. And one of the things I've seen come up with research is that far too often people are just sort of dropping down citations and dropping down research and saying, well, this is the answer, this is it. And they're not actually engaging in that dialogue to really learn about other people's perspectives. Um, the last thing that she talked about was to transform, which means we engage in kind of an in-between space where we're not the judge, we're not the expert, and we don't have the answers. She um, also presented a component analysis in the presentation where she uh, was looking at how do we, you know, stop colonializing our research. And these are the things she put forth with the component analysis. Notice and relate to the feelings of diverse others. Notice and connect social justice relationships. Notice and describe your privilege. Engage with people from diverse perspectives. Um, engage in collective shaping. And then translate this into action and practice that can create one community of love. And she sort of closed out by saying, the world depends on all of us imagining uh, learning from one another and changing. And I think, again, sometimes with research, we tend to get too caught up in like, well, there's data that says such and such, and we fail to learn from one another. Um, and then real quickly, uh, Dr. Pritchett presented for Uncomfortable X in 2020 on her dissertation. And she presented on how do we safeguard against these colonial research practices. And she talked about using collaborative research practices, which would involve engaging with the people that were serving that we need to promote inclusion, amplify voices, prevent exploitation and further marginalization of persons with vulnerabilities, which would result in a paradigm shift in our science and our practice. Like we're no longer coming in as the experts that are just going to solve everything with our research, but we really need to be working with the communities that we're serving. And um, she concluded her presentation by saying, we do not offer a checklist for anti-racist behaviors. Instead, we suggest third ways the radical shifting of paradigms. We can take, we can have undiscovered solutions by engaging with multiple perspectives. If we, um, we can work together despite conflicting values and actions, and there can be a discovery and unity of values if we diffuse the dichotomous imbalanced power differentials. So I know that's kind of a lot and pretty broad for the research thing, but I think, again, this is something I could talk about for a really long time. There's a lot of, uh, 
nuances. It's not just as simple as like, well, there's a study that's been done on that. So here you go. Here's the data. There's so many more things that come up and how we talk about research and use that to either make people right or wrong, I think kind of needs to shift a bit. That went over the five minutes, but I'll take it from my previous time that I had left over. That's right. I'm pretty sure I went over on my first one too. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't tracking. Uh, okay. So I think mine's somewhat quick here. We'll see. Uh, so research for me, you can look at a bunch of different places and try to find like uh, solutions to this. So I, I dug through a few different books. One that I liked was the this uh, the scientist practitioner model, Hayes, Barlow, uh, Nelson Gray. So this is not my words. This is other people's words that I like. Um, and they have some defining defining characteristics of research and evaluation. And they break it down into this nice table that I'm going to describe real quick, which is treatment research versus treatment evaluation. Um, and so they say treatment research has systemic data collected, as does treatment evaluation. Both, both the same there. Uh, there's an intervention specified in both as well, treatment evaluation and treatment research. There's interventions evaluated in both research and evaluation, um, but it starts to change. So subjects selected, base, uh, selected on the basis of scientific needs when you're looking at treatment research. Clients are selected on usual um, clinical criteria in the treatment evaluation. When it comes to treatment research, questions are selected on scientific grounds versus uh, evaluation of treatment would be questions select on the basis of client needs. Treatment research, publication, uh, or presentation may result um, as the, the final outcome. The same thing happens with treatment evaluation. And then the last one is you design tools used to answer scientific questions may result out of both of these as well. Um, so it kind of sets the basis, right? Are, are the clients um, and the, the outcomes of the clients at the forefront versus the basic science. That's how I've kind of looked at trying to understand, is this something that's more of a basic research question or something that's meant for practice? You also have your translational stuff in between there. Um, and for me, I think if I could like so boldly comment on what I think is going on with social media and more of the kind of culture and behavior analysis, at least from my understanding and being a part of it the last 10 years is, um, we're starting to see a shift in relying just on our research or an emphasis on looking at research outside of our field and looking at other ways of thought. I'm on the side of look at everything you possibly can, try to distill it down, see what's useful, move forward. Behavior analysis, that's one lens to look at the world through. There's other things out there. And I think what's going on with disagreements on social media is um, what would be termed air quote acceptable areas to pull from. Um, and you can pull that down into different philosophical areas of thought. You can pull that down into um, specific research studies if you wanted to and like their treatment evaluation approach and how they design things. Um, and we don't have, again, like a, a, a way in which we're all trained to have discussions at those various different levels. And so it's um, easy to find some research, regardless of what side you're on, or traditional hardcore behavior analyst, um, or someone that's exploring these different areas, um, it's easy to pull some research, point to it, and um, lean on that research. But and and it's not that one side or the other is doing things necessarily incorrect from their perspective. But I think the issue is that we're not as a community equipped to be able to really have the in-depth discussions of 
where does that research fall short, regardless of what site it's on, or what philosophical position, what area of study, etc. Um, and it's 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 more seems to be more probable and more reinforced probably that if you're pointing to things that are research, regardless of those nuanced questions, that that's acceptable. And that's kind of the core issue, if that makes sense. So I couldn't I, like break down one, you'd be able to break down one specific example, but unless you have an example to really look at, I don't think I can go more in depth than that, if that makes sense. That's great. And like research to me, I'm going to take a uh, I'm very basic route just because that's where I'm at. Um, like for me, like uh, graduating from uh, my coursework, our, when we were taught research, it's basically just accessing the literature that's um, been systematically developed and, you know, they create their study, they go through the study, and these are their foundings. And we didn't uh, stray away from too much from um, journals from behavior, um, any behavior analytic journals. Um, but the more and more I, um, uh, the longer I, I am in behavior analysis, the more I want to branch out into other fields and see what their, what their research is like, what their, their data shows. And start to also take an account for what, as a practitioner, I have learned while working with my clients, just because not every single research article is going to fit for my client. Not every single procedure that's been established for or, or proved like factual that, you know, hey, this procedure is going to work for your client because uh, if they exhibit this, um, as a practitioner, I want to come into working with the client with what what's going to be beneficial for the client, for the client, and what fits their life and what fits in their home life. So I think the like you get the yes the research definition the that's what is defined, but it should be broader than that. That comp, uh, encompasses a lot more. Uh, what do you guys think? Go ahead, Megan. <laughs> Why do you keep making me go first? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was taking notes to share because our last question is like, you know, uh, what reflections we have. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I think one of the things that I thought about, Joe, when you were talking is just thinking back to grad school, especially for my master's and how much time was focused on just teaching us about how superior single subject design is to like everything else yeah. and how superior behavior analytic research is to everything else. My doc program was not like that. It was a, a you know multidisciplinary special education behavior analytic program where we had people from different disciplines, not all BCBAs. And um, so we got to learn a little bit more about, you know, things. And it just made me start thinking about like, why are we trained like this? <laughs> like, we're just set up for failure. Like, I don't understand. I mean, I get like at one point, you know, when the field was first starting and growing and whatnot, that um, the, there was probably a, a high need to help just mm -hmm. disseminate and educate people on like what even single subject design was. And that probably still exists, but 
Um, so I don't know if just like the people that came before us just really like had felt, I don't know, some, some need to really just dive in on that stuff. And I just feel like I think, we were sorry. excluded. Like there was a lot of things excluded from teaching us because they're worried if we learn about those things, I don't know, something bad will happen. It's just weird to me how exclusionary <laughs> things are. Creating, creating a well-rounded practitioner should include that sort of training. Um, so I wanted mm -hmm. to say that first, but the, I think the beauty of the single subject research and why it's emphasized so much is because it provides you with tools to evaluate on the single level. So as a practitioner helping one person, it was the methods that were best situated to help you solve the problem in the moment with the person that you're working with. So um, knowing how to implement those can help you as a practitioner with each and every single person that you interact with in your future as a practitioner during your career. But if you were only, uh, if you had not known those and you were trying to pull and make inferences off of group research, then that's where it starts to get messy. So I think that's why I was emphasized so much. And I would much rather have that single subject um, knowledge to be able to help people. Now, I don't think we're training that super effectively. <laughs> um, um, and yeah, that, that's a whole podcast itself. But the, um, the, it's like a, it's a, it's knowing how to both implement at the single subject level and understand how to really evaluate something for the person that you're helping. And it's also knowing the, the different types of research that are out there, the methods of creating that research so that you can start to understand um, to what extent that research is applicable in your situation. Um, and there's, there's areas there that I'll admit that I have gaps in, like there's certain areas of research when, uh, particularly like when we're in, uh, uh, sorry, working on show notes for like the Why We Do What We Do podcast that I have to call a buddy and be like, hey, I think this is like a research that's really solid, but like, I don't understand the stats in here. Can you provide a layer of perspective on this for me? Um, so anyhow, like there's, there's a lot we can dive into there, but that single subject is extremely valuable for that individual level. I think that's why it's emphasized. And um, we should really be training people to look at both uh, or all types of research, right? And being able to understand their weight and value, um, like how close were they to actually measuring with the accuracy, reliability, validity, et cetera. Awesome. So last question. Second to last question. Second to last, yes. <laughs> All right. So um, facts and perspectives, what's the deal? Do you want to go first this time, Ryan? Um, yeah, I didn't prep for this one. So I'm just gonna go off the cuff. Um, facts and perspectives. Man, this is like impossible. So, <laughs> so uh, here's a few ideas. Uh, we all have perspectives. This is uh, like by definition, when you look at it also like philosophically, like we are some of our experiences from our perspectives um, and we are limited by the situations that affected our lear learning history and where we're at right now. And that just happens at infinitum always. Um, and so when it comes to a fact, um, these are weird because we're taught that they're like these true things. There's universal truths about how the world works, et cetera. So like Newtonian physics is a good example. We're talked about like, oh, like gravity, it works this way. And this is how you can measure and predict how things move. And it's funny because we can actually be pretty effective with that, but that's theory's actually been completely trashed and thrown out for the general uh, relativity and the, the work done there. And so it's like, 
uh, I don't think there's a hard T capital truth and like hard, uh, hard T. That's funny. Like a hard F is what I was going to say. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> um, like we're like, it's weird if you think that we're going to go undermine and find the truth as where I'm at in my understanding of philosophy of science. What it is, is whether it's PFA or FA, or you're talking about a relational frame theory or verbal behavior, like all of these are just interpretations, scientist language, interpreting and understanding the world around them from a certain conceptual base. Um, they make certain philosophical, philosophical assumptions and certain uh, empirical data informs that. Sometimes there's inferences or leaps there, which you have to really be clear of. Um, and then that through those bodies, right, start to create what they call certain facts. So like arbitrarily applicable relational responding is something that I would think most relational frame theorists say is like a fact about how human language works and how, um, uh, you know, thinking comprehension, these other things uh, kind of occur through, um, air quotes there. But the verbal behavior camp would not look at it that sort of way. They don't believe in that. And so, the, I guess for me, what's been useful is understanding where, how people get to what they call a fact, air quote, is, is been more useful because then I can know uh, when I have a certain issue in my life or with a uh, client, et cetera, that I know what I can refer to to potentially pull from to help in that situation. And so in some, uh, your perspectives build and influence how you're going to approach things. And I think you're constantly trying to like add more information and make sure that you're not like tunnel vision and missing things. Facts are really not hard truths and hard facts. And they're just a byproduct of things that we study and that we pull from with a certain set of assumptions, conceptualizations um, and like models. And it should really just be about what's the most useful one in the moment because we're pragmatic in nature. Um, so if you're getting stuck on the fact stuff, I think we just need to go back to which one's the more, most useful in the moment uh, discussion. I have no clue if that's what we're going for. That's what comes to mind when I think <laughs> about whatever, perspectives yeah. and facts. <laughs> <Whatever>. <laughs> All right. I'll definitely have some reflection points on that in our last question. That was really interesting. Um, so for me, let me get my timer up again, just in case. We actually have plenty of time, but just in case. So for me, when I um, thought of this question and looked at it, there's been some things playing out, especially on social media around facts and perspectives. And I, again, I think like a lot of complexities are being missed. And there, uh, there has been mentioned by certain either podcasts or posts and things like that, that there's some sort of assumption right now that if we're valuing perspectives, that means we're not valuing research. And there's actually whole research lines that focus on perspectives. Like Ryan, you've done some wonderful presentations on the importance of narratives and storytelling and the positive impact this has on disseminating our science. I've been noticing a certain chain of behavior that's happening, especially in social media, where uh, somebody is told to listen to multiple perspectives and reflect upon what they can learn from this. And then step number two is none of us are privy to what that person actually does with the information presented to them because most of the time this is happening online. Then step number three, the person comes back with their own opinions, but it's usually in a defensive manner. And it's in a way that says, here's the research, I'm right, you're wrong. 
And there's never really any sort of indication that the perspectives that were shared that were alternative were, uh, you know, taken into account at all. Um, and this is where I see that pushback come in from the alternative view. So the, the alternative view will push back in and say, hey, you're not listening to us. And then for some reason, this results in the conclusion being drawn that the folks who have the alternative view must not value research because they're also, it's like an and, they're saying, yes, there's research and take into account our perspective, but there seems to be a resistance to take into account that perspective. Um, I have seen some conversations progress forward though. And when I see that, I observe a different chain of events. So the first two steps are still the same. Someone is told to listen to multiple perspectives. Uh, we don't know what they actually do because it's happening online. But in step three, the person typically doesn't respond right away. And when they do come back, some type of statement is made to indicate that they did listen to the perspective of the other person. Something like, thank you for sharing this information with me. I guess I hadn't thought about it that way before. The research that I have read on this has always indicated X. I will review this new perspective you shared and see what new conclusions I might draw. And so then in step four, the folks who shared the alternative perspective are usually satisfied with this. Uh, they have been heard and everyone benefits and we can all progress forward with an exchange like this. And the interesting piece is that the same info is still shared. The research is still brought in for those interested in reading it and everyone can come from a more informed place. Yet um, for whatever reason, that type of exchange, that more progressing forward one doesn't seem to happen very often. And there are a lot of people that seem to insist that the first example that I gave is the exchange that should be occurring, that we should just be dropping research on people and that's that. Um, and so this made me kind of wonder as well, like have any of us actually seen people saying you can't value the research and you should only be looking at people's perspective? The disconnect seems to come in where people are simply asking for some type of confirmation that the alternative perspectives that are shared have been considered. And you can take into account multiple perspectives and synthesize that with what you do in practice. No one is saying acknowledging someone else's perspective means you agree with them or that it's automatically valued more than other sources of information such as a research base. But this whole idea that the research gets to be the end all be all and someone can just post links to a research and end a discussion thus proving they are right and someone else is wrong is not really the most effective way to disseminate our science or improve our practices. And this is supported by liter the literature and our ethics code. Um, I did a, a train, I created a webinar for the Do Better Collective and some of the, the things that I came up with, I'll put the citations in the show notes, but basically there's research from our field and outside on constructive communication and discourse. Uh, recent literature and behavior analysis on cultural humility, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and emerging research on the importance of listening to autistic voices to conduct research or provide effective intervention. So I'll include the citations to all of that in the show notes. Um, so for this section, I just want to close with a quote from LaFrance 2019 that says, components of collaboration include empathy and other basic interpersonal skills. These skills have been examined and taught to medical professionals, demonstrating that they can be operationally defined, measured, and examined in terms of their impact and service provision context. For example, the capacity to actively listen, to engage in dialogue, and to reflect another person's point of view all lead to people feeling heard and valued. 
the absence of these skills may derail an interdisciplinary collaborative effort. So I just really like that quote because I think it summarizes well, like why we need to be listening to people's perspectives and incorporating that in with the research. Um, and then Ryan, what you said like about facts, I think is, is really helpful to add into that discussion as well. Yeah, and the other thing is uh, like, how do we validate those perspectives and know how far we can infer off of them? Well, that's I think that, a that's question. sort of being trained properly. <laughs> well, that's a question that you have to ask about every perspective share, if that makes sense. And so it's not, like that's always something you should think of is like, to what extent is this valid? Um, and what proof do we have there? And then to what part or to, to what extent can I infer that perspective is um, applicable to the situation I'm looking at? There are empirical questions at the end of the day. <laughs> like there's, you gotta, you gotta approach it that way, is my understanding. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure I 100% agree with that piece of it. I think you, you have to be skilled enough as a practitioner to, same as you were saying, like how, like when you're looking at facts and like figuring out what applies in this specific situation and what would work best for, for this learner, the perspective piece is part of that too. So how, you know, what is, what is this person sharing with me right now that's actually applicable to what I'm doing and how do I synthesize that? I don't, I haven't come across anything that would suggest we need to be validating and proving something as true, um, especially with, <laughs> with the example that you gave about like facts are only how people come, like they're doing their own research and things and they come up with their own, not they come up with their own facts, but it's like this collection of information that at this point in time has been determined as true. Um, when someone's sharing their perspective about something, it's not, it's not on me to, especially on social media, it's not on me to like push them and be like, did that really happen? And like, well, question you're, them. but you're, you're expecting that you're expecting those circumstances to be discussed when you're talking about differences in literature. So why does it shift when you talk about perspectives that people have? Because we know things like cognitive biases can happen. And so what we're doing is we're setting up a situation in which we'll potentially never investigate whether or not a cognitive bias, which is really important to consider, is affecting that perspective. So you're creating a situation which you might allow something like a cognitive bias, many different ones out there, to um, be leaned upon and emphasized because you're not asking those questions about that level of detail from of the perspectives. And this isn't to undermine those perspectives, but it's to like try to sort out are there things like cognitive biases in, pers in perspectives? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the difference that um, from what you're saying that comes in is like when you said validate, um, I think that had a different meaning for me of uh, like proving that it actually happened. It sounds like what you're describing there is more of just like approaching Art. it from a place of curiosity to better understand like, well, how did you, where does this perspective come from? That's where you would discover if there was like a bias or something like that. But yeah, valid. you do that in a way that's compassionate and humane and, and kind and humble, as opposed to just being like, did that really happen? You know, the way that, that you initially framed it, it sounded much more harsh, if that makes sense. Well, so what you're getting at with valid measures, like about like, is a perspective valid? Is, is it actually representing the natural events in which they're describing? So when we talk about valid measures, 
is it actually measuring what it says it's measuring? And so if you have a perspective, is it actually uh, sharing the circumstances accurately that it's describing? And so what I was trying to get at there is like, we know that things like cognitive biases can occur. So if we're going to say that we're not going to uh, ask questions about someone's perspective being valid or not, um, and like investigating those sort of things deeper, right? Then we're setting up a situation in which um, we're potentially allowing a lot of things that we know might not be useful for us, like all the cognitive biases out there, allowing to seep through and like permeate into the culture. Um, so it's this interesting like situation there. Devil's in the details. Joe, thoughts? Wow. I, <laughs> I mean, like I'm blown away by you two, just like, just, just discussing this, just because like for me, like, like my take is like, um, both are important, but when it, like for me, like right now, like for facts and perspectives, um, as a practitioner, like now I'm coming into the, um, situation where, you know, I have, uh, RBT who's going through her coursework now. That's all that cares about just research and facts. So as a practitioner, um, how do, how do we as a field, um, train or, um, train or just also guide that new, um, RBT who's going through the coursework to also not just worry about the facts and what research, research says, but how to also help them to look at other perspectives that's maybe outside of our field, just to be a well-rounded practitioner. And that's where I'm at now. It's like, how can we um, do better as a field and train them in a way that to be an effective practitioner in this day and age with social media and um, worrying about research, but also worrying about other people's perspectives. I think those are good, good points. You need to add more time to the training sequences to potentially do things like this. <laughs> like there's, there's no more <laughs> bandwidth. Um, uh, a fun like thing, just because it's, it'll be fun to look on back later. Uh, I think you'll see more emphasis on the side D. Um, uh, in another 10 to 20 years in this field, because you'll have the bandwidth then to uh, allow another um, I don't know, two to three years of experience to be acquired and um, be able to master things like that or other things, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's in psychology, I think that's why, uh, like in, um, in areas like clinical psychology, is what I was trying to say. I think that's why you see the emphasis on the clinical. Um, degree, the PhD degree, right? Um, and CIDE is because it requires a lot more than just a couple of years. So I think that's kind of a, like a lot of these things are symptoms of the, the system that's been designed, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, I was going to say same, like we need to broaden the topics that are trained like this, different um, things that I'll put in the show notes, like those are some research publications that people have started to write in our field. Some of them are outside of our field, but the fact that we work with a lot of different 
types of populations and don't have to take any coursework on like cultural humility or <laughs> yeah. any of a collaboration well, or any of that kind of stuff is, is sure. really not helpful. And if we just substitute those in for other things, like it's just going to put more emphasis on that, but less on the other things that we know are already important or part of the task list. Like, I feel like you need to add um, more time there to really achieve that. Yep. We'll see. Yep. Awesome. I love your guys' perspective. I love that. Thank you. Likewise. So let's go ahead and get into our closing reflection. How about each one of us say one thing that we learned today? And I'll let, um, let's do, let's have Megan go. So I, I noted down a couple of different things. One of the things that um, I'll just go by each area real quick. So for social media, um, Ryan, when you were talking about um, some of this stuff in there, it kind of brought up the question, which I think we sort of skirted around, but didn't necessarily say specifically, um, is social media really the space for some of these things? Like, um, again, how do we really separate that personal versus professional piece? So um, if people are sharing different perspectives on social media, are they actually, are they talking as like their profession in a private Facebook group or are they just being their own human person? Um, and so like, is that the place to push and try to validate perspectives or would that be done in a more like controlled consenting type space, if that makes sense? Um, so that kind of came up for me. Um, and with the research, um, I re was reflecting on what Joe said about uh, like the basic understanding about research. And I think this is what we're trained to, to do in our field is to value research, which is not wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. yes, we need yeah. to value research. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to come up with interventions that are effective. Um, but I think it kind of goes to what we were just talking about where we need to make sure like at least equal time is given toward um, knowing how to like consume literature uh, critically. So not like a lot of people just blindly accept what's, what's published and don't think about like that philosophical doubt piece and like what, you know, what was the experience like for the participants in the research? Did we miss anything? Is this really what the, like what Ryan was talking about with the facts? Is this really what? Like, are the researchers just interpreting things here? Or is this like really the true picture of what's happening and will be most effective? Um, and also equal time toward what you were bringing up, Joe, about like how, how do we take what we know from the research and work with people that value different things? Like some people could give two craps about research. So if you're working with a family or a school or whatever, where like that's not a thing that's of value to them, and there's still interventions that need to be put in place to create productive, happy individuals. How do you work with that? Like, what do you do? Um, and then the biggest thing that I would say, like I learned or really enjoyed hearing about was Ryan, when you were talking about just that analysis around like facts and um, truth. And um, when you said scientists are interpreting the world around them based on their own philosophical assumptions and um, basically it's a byproduct of what we're studying. Um, I just thought that that was a really great way to conceptualize things and, and to be, I guess, maybe to encourage behavior analysts to be a little bit more flexible then around things, like really understanding like these are the yeah. truths in the moment at that time and these are the um, conclusions and interpretations by those researchers and it's our job to like just as critically we would analyze a research study 
yes, we need to do that with perspectives too, but both in ways that are compassionate and, and kind, not in ways where you come across like a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you want to add, uh, if anyone wants to dive into that more, that's kind of the, I was uh, emulating the thinking of like either J.R. Cantor and his inner behaviorism or um, the most recent article or a recent-ish article that guy's published in like crazy, Jordan Belisle. He had one on model dependent realism. Sounds super nerdy. It is kind of thick, but um, I was just trying to distill my understanding of what he laid out in that article when I was talking about those topics. Um, I'm interested in your literature list that you have. Um, so I learned some new resources potentially from you there. Cause like, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't attend the conferences that you had um, mentioned. Um, and we know that that's like part of where the, the kind of uh, leading thought and culture is in our events. And so since I've been able to go to a lot and I haven't gone to as many, um, I feel like I'm missing out on some stuff there. So I'm pretty interested to learn about what those are that you have to share um, and just kind of poke around there. And yeah, I don't know. Those are some reflections, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, just listening to both of you just talk and um, just discussing um, these questions, like it just makes me want to reflect. And this is a podcast that I'll probably have to re-listen on my own uh, because you guys both discuss some great nuggets of information um, and something for me to, I mean, the literature that Ryan and Megan both um um, stated in during this time, it, I, I want to go back and re, I mean, listen or just uh, read and um, get an understanding of from my, my own perspective. But I also learned, like, you know, after, you know, spending about 56 minutes on it with both of you, that as a field, that we need to do better to broaden our perspectives but also to um, do better as a field to make sure what we're doing is ethical and we have more guidelines as far as to social media and how to best go about um, being online as a community. So I think that's what I'm taking away from this too. So. Yeah. yeah, these, I'll add on that these are all empirical questions. Like. <laughs> This is a prime area for a young researcher and like some collaboration with people to start to understand, right? Yeah. Um, it would help inform this discussion a lot more. Yeah. And there is, I mean, again, it's not behavior analytic necessarily, but there is a lot of research, especially in social work and counseling and broader clinical psychology around discourse and how to, um, how to uplift voices and still, you know, provide effective intervention and what effect that has. And I think we also have to make sure people aren't trying to reinvent the wheel because a lot of times behavior analysts assume that if it's not in our journals, it must not have been studied yet. <laughs> so we have to, to look at you know those other sources and figure out ways to study them behavior analytically if, if they're not already there. Dig. Awesome. I, I love uh, everything that we guys discussed about. Um, Megan, do you have anything else before we head off? Nope. We'll just make sure all the resources are in the show notes. Ryan, if you want to send over any of the citations, like the Hayes book that you had or anything else that you want to share, feel free and we'll add those to the notes too. 
thanks for joining us today and rushing through this important no, conversation. That's right. <laughs> yeah, if you want to stick on a few minutes, I got a few minutes. Um, uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. And it's been fun chatting. Definitely, definitely. All right, guys, go ahead and go forth and do better.